This week on the Parlaying All Blue, we are joined by Dr. Gay Byron. She is a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the Howard University School of Divinity. Her scholarship focuses on liberation and womanist interpretations of the Bible, the Pauline epistles, race and ethnicity in early Christian writings, and the origins of Christianity in ancient Ethiopia. Our conversation will focus a lot on Ethiopian, Ethiopian church, but we can't forget the Coptic church in Egypt and early Christian scholarship and the early church in Alexandria there in Egypt. You see, black history predates the slave trade and civil rights is not the most important contribution that black people have made to humanity. Let the church say amen. You see, the kingdom of Aksum, which is current day Ethiopia and Eritrea, declared Christianity as its official religion in the year 325 AD. Now, Christian texts, rituals, scholars, councils, churches were vibrant in Africa hundreds of years before the King James Bible, hundreds of years before Notre Dame. And again, if we don't know, if you don't know, look it up. Aksum, along with Persia, China, and Rome, was one of the four great empires, kingdoms of its time. Dr. Byron will give us an overview of Aksum a little bit. Again, all of these are peaks inside the window. You've got to do more. We have to do more to know about this. She gives us a peek into that and gives us a broad overview of early Christianity and its roots in Africa. But the thing that's important to take from this conversation is who is being centered when history is presented to us? And all history, whether it's the history of um, science or literature or music or whatever, in this case, religion and specifically the Christian faith. Who's centered in the conversation? Who's missing? Whose perspective is missing from the conversation? All of that is very important. And so much of our history has been uh, erased. Now, part of our ambition at the Parlay in All Blue is to restore memory and to raise consciousness. Again, this episode is a peep, an opening into the African roots of Christianity. No podcast or documentary can replace study. No podcast can fill the repository of knowledge. This is a drop in the bucket that we hope inspires you to know more, to do more. Now, we thank you for joining us. You can support our work by liking our episodes leaving a rating. It helps us out when you do that because others can find us. You can follow us on social media. You can also view Dr. Byron's profile at the Howard University website. You can see everything that she's worked on and working on and has written. And you can also find something about the Tweed Collection, which is a large collection of Ethiopic manuscripts, which is housed. Part of it is housed right there at, at Howard. So that's also really important. Again, back to our show. 
The show runs off of coffee and books. You can support us uh, by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash Mark Dawson. We appreciate you. And again, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Dr. Gay Byron, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I am doing very well, and thank you for having me here. Hey, thank you for joining us. And it's a couple of days after Easter in the uh, for in most people, a lot of people, a lot of Christians in the United States had either dress up day <laughs> or they attended the church for the first time in a long time. And then there's a whole lot of people that are like, wow, I can't even get my seat in parking place today because it's so crowded. With that, I want to make this a conversation about Christianity, right, in, in general and in early Christianity. But I want to start with just sort of how I got here. One of the joys in life that I have is is travel with my family. And, and, and I've been able to travel quite a bit. And one of the things that I've been able to do is to visit churches in Latin America and in Europe and throughout the United States or what have you. And you see these really marvelous architectures and a lot of artwork and really ornately decorated and all of these things. And so, you know, it's one of the things I like to do, but we had the opportunity to go to Ethiopia and everything that I thought I knew was kind of rearranged because of the architecture, art. I think, so I'm not a, a biblical scholar or anything like that. So I'm going to use the words like the rituals, the Bible, the holy books, the songs, all of those things just really turned me around. And it really made me rethink because it wasn't like, like Notre Dame is, I want to say in the 12th century, right? And the, the, the fabulous churches in uh, Latin America, particularly in Quito, and they're all ornate, all of those are new world creations. But Christianity in Ethiopia has deep roots, but there are even deeper roots on the continent of Africa. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about the origins of Christianity in Africa? Yeah, I am so glad that you have uh, opened up this conversation because it's such a rich conversation because we tend to think about our understanding of Christianity having been introduced to us here in through colonized, you know, enslavement. And the point is Christianity began in Africa. And we have to go to East Africa, the Horn of Africa, to get to the origins of Christianity on the continent. And so it's very important for us to, to shine a light, if you will, on Ethiopia and Eritrea. You cannot talk about Ethiopian Christianity without also talking about Eritrea and without also naming this very vital empire that was thriving at the same time as the Roman Empire. So we have a Romanized Christianity, if you will, when we're celebrating uh, the resurrection and Jesus on the cross, 
All of that is coming through the Greco-Roman worldview and understanding of Christianity. But when we look at the African origins of Christianity, we go to the highlands of Ethiopia and we go to the coast of Eritrea and we go to this empire known as the Aksumite Empire. Now, your listeners may already know of this, but I must confess when I was in seminary and also in my PhD program, the Christianity that I work with, which was the basis and background for my studies in New Testament and early Christianity, was based around the Mediterranean Sea and the Roman Empire. And so I had no knowledge of King Izana. We learned all about Constantine and how he made Christianity the, the official religion of the Roman Empire, but there was a King Izana in Axum, this Axumite Empire. He, he also made Christianity the official religion in Ethiopia. And so this was coexisting all the way back in antiquity. And that's what makes Ethiopian Christianity so unique is because we go, as you indicated, we don't have to go to the 15th century or the 12th century. We go all the way back to the origins, the beginnings of Christianity. And so I just want to name the Aksumite Empire just so we can on the table and on the map. And it's an empire that runs along the Red Sea, the Red Sea, and not just orienting around the Mediterranean. So now we bring in the Nile River and the Red Sea as our, our landmarks for Ethiopian African Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so again, uh, thank you for that, because I think it's really important because a part of what we try to do on the show is to raise sort of African consciousness, Black consciousness, and whether you are someone in Lagos or in Detroit or in Cartagena, if you are of Afro or African blood, that's who we're talking to. And uh, for people who don't know, the Aksumite Empire was one of the four great empires of its time, along with the Persian Empire, the Chinese, and Roman Empire. So we're not talking about a minor player at, at all uh, there. So with that, my understanding, and, and I'm, again, I'm not a scholar, I've had the, the good fortune of, through my parents, I was raised Methodist. I went to Seventh-day Adventist school for elementary school and Catholic school or high school. So I've had a whole lot of Bible, let me say that. But with that, how does Christianity take root in Ethiopia? Why were the why they why were the Aksumites and like you said now what we know as the Eritreans and the Ethiopians so open to it? How were they able to receive and embrace Christianity and, and like you said make it the religion of the state? Right. So boy there's a lot I want to put out here. Um mm-hmm. let me first start by going to the Bible as a biblical scholar. And I'll I'll circle back to your question. But there's a reference, and I think any conversation we have about Ethiopian Christianity, we must bring in the Ethiopian eunuch story that is mentioned in the book of Acts. It's Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. Now, that Ethiopian eunuch story is actually earlier 
than this period of the Aksumite Empire. And the Ethiopian eunuch story is actually referring to Nubia, modern day Sudan, which is very different from Ethiopia. So I just want to help us to think about how how challenging it is to even get at Ethiopia and which Ethiopia are we talking about when we talk about Ethiopia. So I just wanted to, to make that clear that when we talk about Ethiopian Christianity, we're not solely talking about the Christianity that emerged out of the Aksumite context. That is the primary official context because of trade. So getting at your question, the trade and and the interface with other nationalities and peoples who were in religious leadership and also the economic impact of that Red Sea trade route from Indian from the Indian Ocean up to the Mediterranean Sea. So you can see that Ethiopia was going to be a player. And the Ethiopian Highlands itself, that, that, that whole context made it such that it was an ideal locale to harbor travelers. There's the story about Muhammad actually sought refuge in Ethiopia, the same Ethiopia that we're talking about in, in the Ethiopian Highlands. But it's also important to know that there is Nubian Christianity also be understood as Ethiopian Christianity. But in Nubia, there's a long lineage of queens known as the Kandake. And so you read, so I have to put that on the table. So if you read that Ethiopian eunuch story, he's the court official or the treasurer of Candace. That's the Latinized form of the Meroitic Kandake. Well, there's not just one Candace. There's a whole lineage of queens who were ruling those Nubian kingdoms. And so that's just very important for us to think about how broad and widespread Ethiopian Christianity actually was in antiquity and still is today. And what makes the Aksumite Christianity, if you will, so important for us today is that it is still basically being practiced the way it was in ancient times through the Ethiopian Orthodox Church tradition today. So if you want to hear the language of the Aksumites, which is classical Ethiopic, ancient Ethiopic, you go to an Ethiopian Orthodox Church service and you will hear Ge'ez. They don't teach us this in seminary. They don't even teach us this in at least New Testament and early Christian graduate school programs. This is the kind of material that I had to uncover after I finished my credentializing, if you will, after I started teaching. And I realized I didn't have a full picture of what was going on in antiquity. And that's what led me on this quest to understand the origins of Christianity in Ethiopia. Yeah, so so that was powerful and that's a lot. And there's a couple of things I want to unpack there just to make okay. sure I'm tracking. Yes. So first off, a lot of times when we hear from Greek or Roman or European writers and talking about antiquity, 
Ethiopia can be a stand-in or a euphemism for all of Africa. That's number one. And then, do I have that right? Yes. Yeah. That, okay. yeah. Right. Yeah. And and then my understanding of of who would have been Makeda, what we know as the Queen of Sheba, and we're talking about Ethiopia at that time. It included what we what we now know as parts of Sudan. What we have now is Ethiopian uh, and Eritrea. And just well, it's a large swath. OK, but go ahead. Let me clarify about Makeda, who is actually the queen of Sheba, if you will. Yes. She yes. is from the Aksumite context. OK, very well, cool. Makeda is not Nubian. And a lot of times the Kandake are conflated with the queen of Sheba. So that that very thing is, is and it so easily and so often happens. And that's why in order to st- understand Christianity, the origins of Christianity in Africa, a number one, pull out your map. You have to have your map and pull out a good chronology and the various histories of these different kings and queens and their respective empires, kingdoms, what have you. So I just want to note that Makeda or the Queen of Sheba, Aksum, Kandake, Nubia. Two different modern contexts today. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And I always tell people a map, and and looking at a map will make a lot of, it will show you how easily things would travel and you see the water and all of those things. So early Christianity includes Africa. It includes what we now know is or called Turkey or Asia Minor, uh, the Mediterranean, um, and I guess maybe sort of. Uh, I said Africa, so I don't need to say North Africa. Or Judea and Jerusalem. Early Christianity was very Judaic in its origin, so we do not want to leave that out. Syria, Judea, yes, Syria. Yes, yeah. all of Syria, Iran, a lot of early Christianity there. So now when I think of our people will know in the United States, if you're a Christian, everybody's heard of Paul because, you know, we have the, his letters, which make up a big portion of the New Testament. But then people will also know Ignatius, who's a scholar, Augustine, early scholars, what have you. And so that has influenced a lot of, you know, the way the way we worship in the United States, at least. Were early African scholars and writers and thinkers involved in shaping Christianity? Well, you just called Augustine's name. Augustine, that's right. Well, he is African. That's right. But what tends to happen is that's that northern Africa. Yeah. And that's why Egypt... You know, usually, so the the whole monastic tradition, all of the church fathers, Jerome, Antony, Athanasius, you can go down the list. They're African, but it's framed in this context of empire. And it's framed around the Romanized understanding of their teachings. And then you put that whole Pauline adoption of Augustine's teachings, and it further perpetuates this very Eurocentric framework for Christianity. And it's not only Paul's 13 
letters, well, there's seven authentic letters of Paul and six others that are attributed to Paul. But there, there's also the Acts of the Apostles. All of what Luke was writing in the Acts of the Apostles is basically about Paul's journeys around the Mediterranean. So that's even another historical framing, if you will, of our understanding of Christianity. So it's no wonder we can hardly come out of this stronghold that we've been locked into when it comes to our understanding of Christianity and our theological worldview associated with that understanding. How do we get to Africa becomes the question. How can we get there? (laughs) Africans, you know, Augustine, but that strong framing of the narratives around a worldview where you basically are lifting Egypt out of Africa and Carthage and all of these other places, they come out of Africa. And that's the, a big part of my work is emphasizing Africans and just saying it, putting it on the table. And once again, helping my students. So imagine lay listeners, lay readers, lay persons who go to church or whatever they're doing, reading. It's almost impossible to get to our stories, our narratives and our experiences from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And so, listen, that's why we're here to open up a little bit of this. And I'm glad you started with Augustine or Augustine, as I called it, is yeah. because, you know, as I'm preparing for this and you look right there, of course, that's in Africa, that's in Egypt. And so it's like a lot of times Alexandria, which is an old Christian church, and I think it's the Coptic church or what have you, it's right there in Africa, right? It's, it's, it's like, it's obvious, like, duh, you're looking at it, it's right there in, in Africa. And so I'm glad we're, we're having this conversation. Tell but me it's a little bit. Of the, let me just add, it's hanging off of the Mediterranean Sea. And that's why these waterways define so much of how we situate ourselves. So the Africa down and up the Nile River, that, that's not what we are typically exposed to. You see, so I just wanted to put that in there. It's, it's on the map, but it's still in a very Romanized Mediterranean lens. Talk to me a little bit, and I... um. Gaz, is am I saying it properly? Gaz, okay. yes. Gaz. So mm-hmm. uh, again, on our trip, we visited the Church of Lollibella, and we were there on December twenty fifth and twenty sixth that we were going through the church there. We actually heard a service in Gaz. It was a it was like a service of healing, and I, you know, my daughter and I were saying this is kind of like altar call that we would have in the United States. Right. But what is what is gay as I guess would be an equivalent to the way Latin is you was used in the Catholic Church. Is that right? Exactly. It's as is the liturgical language of the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Church today. But it was the language of the Aksumite Empire back in antiquity. But the language still has survived and is still active as a liturgical language in Orthodox Ethiopian churches today. 
Ge'ez is a Semitic language. So by that, I mean Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic. So it's a Semitic language that goes back as far as the other languages. And and once again, that's where we get into how would one even know about Gez, number one, or even have an opportunity to learn it or to understand all of the Ethiopic literature that survives today that is written in Gez. And so that's the thrust of my scholarship right now is actually putting this literature on the table, exposing these different manuscript collections that exist here in the U.S. and and across the world, these manuscripts that have been taken out of Ethiopia and, and trying to find a way to make this material more accessible to students and practitioners today. So speaking of that, at the Howard University School of Divinity, you all uh, have the Tweed collection. And for everybody listening that may say, well, how does Mark know about this? I've known about this for like two hours. So don't don't worry. That's why <laughs> you're listening. Maybe a like, month. Maybe a month. Maybe a month. So uh, tell us about the Tweed collection and why yes. it's important. Yes. Well, I'm I'm just so glad you've asked about that. Uh, the Tweed collection is our collection of Ethiopic artifacts and manuscripts that were donated to the School of Divinity at Howard University in 1993. So this collection came to us as a gift from an alumnus of the College of Medicine at Howard. And that's Dr. Andre Reynolds Tweed. Dr. Tweed finished the College of Medicine in 1952 and went on to have his own practice in psychiatry in California. He was, in fact, the first board certified psychiatrist in the state of California. And one of his passions, and I'm looking at you, we all have our passions. One of his passions was traveling and collecting. And so I've written about Dr. Tweed and I understand him as a, a an African-American bibliophile, a collector and a keeper of tradition. And it's, it's those collectors like Dr. Tweed and similar to the collection at the Moreland Spingarn Research Center. At Howard University, we have a number of collections like this. You you go to the Schomburg in Schaumburg. New York City. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. So so in Chicago, a, around this country, there are these major collections of art. But also, in particular, at Howard, we have this collection of 151 Ethiopic manuscripts. And that's what makes up this Tweed collection in earnest that we're talking about regarding the manuscript tradition, but there are also crosses and art and other artifacts in that collection. My interest is with the manuscripts. And this manuscript collection at Howard University is one of the five largest collections in the United States. So standing alongside Princeton University, 
Duke University, UCLA out in Los Angeles, and Catholic University, Catholic University of America, which is also in Washington, D.C. There stands Howard University's collection of sacred Ethiopic manuscripts. That is phenomenal. Amen. And now let me say this. You have just by, by, by uh, raising the name of Howard, my daughter, who's a Howard alumnus, is uh, going to be very happy to hear that. You and have to do it. H-U. I got to do it. And and then uh, my wife, who's a graduate of Hampton, is going to say, oh, my God, here you go Come again. Go. <laughs> yeah, but, but listen, so what does that Ethiopic collection in terms of the manuscripts what does that reveal to us who are like someone like myself who grew up Methodist and just yeah. a sort of standard Western American, Black American mm-hmm. Christian? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would in those manuscripts, what would that inform uh, about my understanding of the church and faith and all of those things that I that's not available in my sort of Christian Bible that I yeah. have now? There are so many, the biblical texts, but the canon for the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is much larger than the canon for the the traditional Roman Christianity that we, and our canonical books of uh, the Hebrew Bible and New Testament. So the Ethiopic Church has 81 writings instead of the the 66 um, for for the canonical tradition of the Western church. But what's so fascinating to me about the collection are the, the hymns, the musical traditions that we are able to access. You have a lot of theological treatises, the, the actual teachings of the church that let us know that the Trinitarian concept wasn't the only way of understanding theology. One of the things I love about the collection are, and this is not just at Howard's collection, but at in most of these uh, collections of Ethiopic manuscripts are the prayer scrolls. So you, you get an example of the rich prayer tradition of this church and how personalized the prayers were and still are. So this tradition is still a living tradition. And that's what I I like to emphasize in this scholarship is that this is not looking back in the past to something that's old, dead, and buried. This is a living tradition. And these manuscripts are living witnesses. Put a period after that. I mean, that's that's, that's true there. Yeah. No. So listen, uh, and I, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but when I've uh, gone to Notre Dame, it is largely it's largely a museum. I mean, it's fabulous architecture. And, I, you know, if you're in Paris, of course, you're going to go there. But visiting the churches at Lalibela, what I found that that these are operating churches like people are having services there. It's not I mean, it is a it is a magnificent Piece of the architecture is amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's it's one of the wonders of the world. It's a UNESCO yes. heritage site. It is all yes. of that, but it is also an operating church. You see people coming there to hear services, and prayers, and and you know to prayer for healing and all of those things. So I'm glad you said that this is living. 
a living sort of church and a living tradition uh, within the faith. I want to ask, where did um, sort of this, we have the, the Roman church and and the church, the Ethiopic church sort of, did, was there a split or how did we get sort of here? How is it that we're going to get to colonialism in the, in the slave trade and all of that. But I'm okay. just talking about yeah. just so where do we want to start? Yeah, just from a scholarship standpoint, where does sort of the Roman uh, influence come in and how do they separate uh, from what's in Ethiopia? The one thing about it is that all of these expressions of Christianity were coexisting. Okay, so it's just a matter of what you have been tutored to look at, what's deemed authoritative. And so going back to the beginning, there was the notion of orthodox, orthodoxy and heresy. There were these church councils that would set up conferences and gatherings where these early church fathers and a limited number of them would vote on doctrine. In the beginning, there was no doctrine. There were teachings. There were different ways for communities of believers to live out their faith. If we can ever go back to that, we live in a doctrinal Christian world. And what happened is you, over time, when the risen Savior and we're in this season of celebrating resurrection. And I'm all into that. I'm an ordained minister. I think I want to put that on the table and emphasize it. But I'm also a scholar of the Bible. And I know how much as has, first of all, been left out. And secondly, even if it's in there, there are some inherent biases as to how we have been conditioned to read the narratives. And furthermore, what we have been encouraged to read in the first place. And so my whole thing is, I'm not creating anything new. We're not trying to start any new movements here or anything. My, my vocation is to uncover what has already been there that you, Mark, have never been invited to look at and explore. You've had the the wherewithal and whatever other privileges that come with travel. You've been able to venture out on your own, but think of just everyday men and women. Think of our youth who are searching for identity, outlets for understanding who they are. Just imagine if we knew of this tradition, not as somebody else's tradition, where they put it on us and forced us to live according to their slave religion. What if we go back and retrieve what it means to have our own access to a living God? And God shows up through these different teachings about Jesus and the miracles of Jesus. So getting that, why this Ethiopic literature is important. There's a whole genre of writings in the Ethiopian tradition that don't show up in our Greco-Roman tradition, 
about the miracles of Jesus. We have the way the gospel writers within their own Romanized context talk about some of the miracles of Jesus, but there's so many more and so many other expressions and so many miracles of Mary. Let's let's bring the women in here. And of course, Mary is the virgin, the one who, you know, was responsible for Jesus coming into the world, but Mary had a life as well. And there are miracles and stories about Mary beyond what we get in Luke chapter two, right? The the Immaculate Conception and the, the Song of Mary. There's just so much more. And so that's why I think I've kind of lost whatever the question was. No, I've gone on this this is better than the question. I'm going to come back to that. This is better than the question because it gets to, to the point of, I, I like what you said, and I'm not going to say it. You said where the authority lies, right? It's sort of where the authority lies and where the lens we look at it. Like going back to when I'm saying that the early scholars, and I mentioned Augustine, and he's African, and I'm asking about African scholars, religious scholars, right? Early influencers. But so that was really, uh, I'm glad you said that. But I was wondering where sort of, where did this um, dominant influence of the Roman church come in? And then, listen, there is a point of of colonization and the slave trade mm-hmm. where Christianity is used to justify those things. Where does that sort of begin? Um, well, that's what I mean. It goes back as early as those teachings and those early debates around what constituted a heresy. So you have your early council, the council of Nicaea, the council of Chalcedon, you know, um, in the fourth and fifth centuries, so that's what we can identify at that point. But even early on, I, I mentioned earlier about how Christianity emerged out of a Judaic context. So you can't talk about Christianity or no Christianity without understanding Judaism. It all goes together. And so until we have a much broader interfaith perspective and openness to respect these other traditions, we're just going to be so limited in how we, well, we can live out our faith in any way we choose to live it out, but to have the full appreciation of the tradition. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. So we we understand the layers of Judaism within Christianity. Then we understand the, the layers of the other theological perspectives within Christianity. Then we understand the gender diversity in Christianity, all of these things. So then it would just not even make any sense that women shouldn't be preaching in our churches. I don't even, that shouldn't even be up for discussion. Paul had all kinds of women in his ministry, tent making with them and traveling with them. And as it says in Philippians, risking their necks for the gospel. But how have we been conditioned to read this gospel? And who, whose story matters? I think that that's the thing. And, and if we can just sit with that, and even as we think about our own experiences, what matters? Yeah. So, so with that, I want to transition into talk a little bit more about that um, 
in reading uh, the book that you edited along with uh, Vanessa Lovelace, Womanist Interpretations. I, I So I read your essay about the Ethiopic literature in church in Ethiopia, but I went into other essays of, of, of and I, I don't have the titles of them all, but I read you know, a few of them and I realized that I don't think I'd ever heard Black women scholars, Black women biblical scholars or interpreting text before. I don't, I'm, and I'm not talking about uh, a sermon from an evangelist, you know, or what have you. I've certainly had that, but I'm talking about from a scholarship standpoint. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I, I think that really stood out to me. Why was putting that book together important and sort of what's the aim there? Mm-hmm. Well, in that book, we're building on this tradition of womanist theology and womanist biblical interpretation that goes all the way back to the early 80s in terms of the scholarly, theological scholarship. I mean, Black women have been living in a womanist way from the times of Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tugman, if you will, that kind of agency to to own your experiences and and basically make a way out of no way. But in terms of theological education, uh, womanist theology uh, came through the uh, writings of Alice Walker in 1983, who coined the term womanist and gave this four-part definition. So that's what pulled womanist, which was a secular category, if you will, into theological discourses. And so first of all, you had womanist theology, and then that emerged uh, in different pockets of the U.S., but at uh, Union Seminary, Harvard, uh, even Howard University, there, there, there were conversations about womanism that were taking place. But in particular, at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, Dr. James Cohn, was the professor who had these Black women students, doctoral students, who were hanging on to his, his teachings about Black theology. They're like, well, where are the women in this? Where are the Black women? And so they pushed back on their professor. And he made space and stepped out of the way, let's put it that way, for them to start building their own theology. And from that theology, womanist biblical interpretation emerged. And so our book, book co-edited with my colleague, uh, Dr. Vanessa Lovelace, she's in Hebrew Bible, a New Testament. Our, our book basically extends this dialogue that has already been happening for several decades. But now instead of having a number of scattered essays and, you know, you can pick it up here, pick it up there. But like you said, you had never heard about womanist biblical interpretation. Now we have a number of books. Ours is just one of many publications on the way Black women read and interpret biblical texts. Okay. And and so now there's several of your colleagues and contributors there. Which essay sort of when you when you were editing it or really sort of stuck with you or that you would point a person to, black woman or a person, just a person. 
too. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy. There are just so many. Um, there's one essay, and I don't have the volume in front of me, but uh, there's one that deals with what it means to be single. And you, so we talk about families and church life is all built around families and couples. And that's like the ideal way to live. And the author of that particular essay, Stacy Davis, Dr. Stacy Davis, she's like, all of, the, all of these different social groups are mentioned except mine, the single woman. So that, that's one that stands out. And then another one by Dr. Will Gaffney deal, uses hip hop. I don't know if you looked at that one, but uh, it actually embraces hip hop lyrics and hip hop culture to understand how uh, black women talk back to powers and principalities. It's, it's just a culturally relevant way of yeah. reading biblical text and nothing is off limits. So yeah, it's sass. Yes. <laughs> yes. So sass. You remember that one by Dr. Yeah, I remember that one, but I have to tell you it was the the essay by Dr. Davis about the yeah. um single women missing that actually opened it up for me in terms of okay, now I get it. It's that their yeah. their voices that are in sacred text, but don't end up in the way we teach or or experience faith or what have you. And so you have people going to church that are sort of left out, I would sort of exactly. sort of think, or don't see themselves um, as as plainly. And now you're also involved in a uh, editing a book which I, I haven't read of uh, black um, black scholars matter. Um, yeah, yes, yes, and, yes. And tell me about that one. Yeah, so that that book, that's more recent, Black Scholars Matter, uh, Africana Traditions. You're pulling up all these books that I don't don't even remember the subtitles now, but it's about my colleagues of African descent uh, from from the African diaspora and basically our experiences as biblical scholars in a guild that was not set up for us. You know, back in the late 19th century, they didn't even think that Black people would ever engage the Bible on a scholarly level. And so Black Scholars Matter came out of that context of the Black Lives Matter movement, with what happened to George Floyd and what happens to so many of our African-American men and women um, and so the Guild, the Society of Biblical Literature, wanted to do a, a two-day symposium, if you will, talking about what it, what our lives as Black scholars mean, and what the struggle is, and what the what have we learned, but also our vision. So that's in that subtitle: it's the visions, hopes, um, and hopes for Africana biblical studies. So it's not just recapping. So there are a lot of um, first-person narratives in this book. So if you want to know what it means to be a biblical scholar, read some of these some of these stories. If you want to know the struggle, and it's not just U.S.-based scholars. So we have one colleague from Haiti talking about his pilgrimage from Haiti to all of these other places. Canada. We have a South African 
scholars. So we're looking at Africana. That's why we didn't limit it to African-American experiences. But what does it mean to be a person of African descent in the diaspora, teaching and producing scholarship on the Bible within this context that is very European and never imagined that we would be here. And we are here and we're setting the pace for what this scholarship is to look like going into the future. That's that's the beauty of it. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you're bringing in the the diaspora because again, um, whether it's uh, talking to people in Brazil or in Brixton, there in London, unfortunately, in the black world, there is a Trayvon Martin or a George Floyd on every continent in every city, and that's that's really a shame. Um, I want to go back to you and your journey and where you said sort of, I'm paraphrasing, that you finished your um, scholarship and your credentializing and realized that you had sort of gaps of knowledge. So what 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 made you realize that there were some gaps and what was your first step in, in beginning to fill that out? Mm. So now we're getting to my third book. That's a wonderful way to Okay. And this was actually the very first book that was published, let's go ahead and say it, 20 years ago. Okay. When I finished my studies, it's it's the, the book that came out of my dissertation writing. And I realized I was doing a rhetorical study of these symbolic representations of Egyptians, Ethiopians, and Blacks in early Christian writings. But all of my examples were Greek and Latin. And I did a rhetorical study of how these ethnic groups were used by these Greco-Roman writers, including Christian writers, but I didn't have access to what was going on in Ethiopia itself and what was happening with these Black people in this Blackness, why were the Greco-Roman writers so obsessed Mm -hmm. with these ethnic groups? And what happened is I was going around and making these talks and lectures uh, to these different audiences, and I would receive questions to the like. So what's going on in Ethiopia? What's happening with this Black woman? Why is she chained and Naked. And I mean, if you read some of the Christian literature about Ethiopian women, and you'll see that in the book, Symbolic Blackness and Ethnic Difference in Early Christianity. That was my first book, Symbolic Blackness. That's when I was like, wait a minute. I don't know what was going on. I do know that there's some, and I identified some ethno-political, some, a lot of political things going on in the desert but I didn't have access to literature beyond those Greco-Roman sources. That's a limitation. And so I had to go about the business of retooling. And the first stop was to, to identify some grammars and lexicons on Ge'ez, even 
And then I started doing the historical work. And that has just continued to evolve over the past 15 years or so to the point now where I am squarely focused on looking at the manuscript culture of ancient Ethiopia. And that's the kind of class that I'm even teaching this semester at Howard University, where we actually look at African scribes. We look at the manuscript culture of Ethiopia. We shift the gaze. Let's start this at Howard. We, we, we start out with the maps. We start out understanding the Nile River, the Red Sea, the Aksumite Empire, the, the vocabulary. It's just a whole different world, a whole different cultural world. And we, myself included, along with my students, are on a journey of respecting this cultural heritage and raising critical questions around why are all of these thousands and thousands of manuscripts, Ethiopian manuscripts, in U.S. and European universities and museums? What? Okay, we're not going to be able to answer all of that. I think we're coming kind of down to the end of our time. But we look at this, though, and we don't shy away from the ethical questions, though. So let me say this. I, and this is Mark's opinion, right? Is that when I when I look at sort of so many collections, you mentioned the Tweed collection, this at Howard, but there's other, you know, yeah. Duke and UCLA. You can look at, you know, outside in the secular world, the Benin bronzes are in British museums and in German museums. That I I want to just put a a, a pin in in people's ear that it's not just our bodies that have been captured, but a lot of our memory and scholarship is in places that are inaccessible to us. And we have to, to break that down. You mentioned the gaze and the, the gaze and sort of, sort of that Roman gaze around Christianity, but then there's uh, the Tony Morrison just calls the white gaze, right? Or what have you. Um, listen, we know about colonialism, transatlantic slave trade. Uh, we also know that um, Nat Turner used the Bible as a source of rebellion and Dr. King as a source of liberation, civil rights, or what have you. If we had, from the work that you do, more of an Africana lens in today's sort of politics, and I can mention sort of this uh, anti-CRT rhetoric and laws, women's autonomy, uh, mm-hmm. gun laws, mm-hmm. so many different things. If we had an, were bringing an Africana lens to these things, mm-hmm. what would that look like and sound like? There's a lot of healing in the Africana tradition, at least in the Ethiopian tradition that I've been studying. And if we can find a way to lift up more than the violence that basically undergirds the Roman Christian experience. It was a death on a cross, right? A violent death. And we can think about the kinds of lynchings and the violence that is still perpetuated against Black bodies today. And if we can find a way to shift more to a worldview that emphasizes humanity, healing, 
and I'm going to get a little pastoral now, but prayer as well. Come on. And that that's that's the gift I would suggest of the Ethiopian tradition. There are healing texts, medical texts, prayer scrolls, a way of living that is reverent and respectful of humanity. So you can see I kind of brought the voice down. I think we need to slow it down, though, and think about the perpetuation of violence in our land and even throughout the globe. Um, Nothing needs to be done. It's not okay what's happening on a daily basis. We're going to get to the point now where every day is another mass shooting. And that's an abomination. And we should not sit by idly and, and continue to let this happen. So any and every way we can make a difference to bring more peace in our society and peace in this world, this is my one little way. Through education, through recovery, through making accessible the inaccessible, making visible the invisible. And we all do the one thing we can do. You're doing it here by hosting these different conversations. I, I thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Let me ask you this, and, and just to to put make it make it a sharper question. If we brought the uh, Ethiopic um, text and manuscripts uh, in an Africana studies view into our sort of political discourse, and where I'm going is is, is in your home state of Florida. Um, you Don't know, bring it up. Don't do it. I have to, I have to, I have to, is that a lot of times when I'm hearing pushback on CRT and Black history in the classes, people will say it is against my religion. I'm a Christian and I don't believe in that. Is there anything in the Ethiopic text that says we should not be bringing in uh, Black history or any of that? Of the very existence of Ethiopic texts means there's everybody's history out there that deserves to be honored. And so when you start to see people trying to control ideas and history and education, that's that's very dangerous. And the mere fact that Ethiopian Christianity exists, just like tradition, traditional African religions, come on. There's no one group that has a stronghold on Christianity. And that's the, that's how white supremacy operates, though, to, to take over everything and make it seem like there was nobody else and nobody's. Nor the boys, nor the scholars, no, n- nothing else matters. No, I, that is very important. One more sort of scholarly or thing to talk about that I want to get before we we sort of wrap up and and, and thank you again for the conversation is there is something that sticks for me is that most of the people who most of the Africans who are in the new world, whether we be in Atlanta today or in Rio or what have you come from West and Central Africa. And I want to say that those people were primarily coming out of traditional African religions and in some cases Islam or what have you and were introduced to Christianity during the sort of 14th, 15th, 16th century. Is that correct? Do I, is that? That's, that, that's fair enough. You know, we don't want to generalize. And yeah. I mean, 
you got to go to each context and do its own historical survey. Yeah, but, and, and that that's yeah. that's exactly right. So I don't want to generalize it, but yeah. at the same time, one of the arguments that people will will say is that you know, well, Christianity isn't Black people's religion that came to us via the slave trade and colonization. What's your response to that? No, go to East Africa, go to the Ethiopian highlands, and 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 read our history. And our history in terms of the global origins of Christianity in ancient Ethiopia. I, I just think there's so much to learn from the tradition. I continue to learn each and every day. And so I was just sharing that in another context. I learn, I teach, I learn. I, you know, it's an ongoing process. And we stay in dialogue with one another and we hold one another accountable to going beyond some of the myths and some of the limited ways that we have been exposed to Christianity. With all due respect to, you know, our churches and our ancestors, everybody does the best they can in their season. And now we're pushing way up into this 21st century. We got to do better and do Listen, we absolutely have to to do better. Let me ask you, is the um where would a person that's listening to this and they just want to just start um you know exploring what 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 is a good place for somebody who's just like coming in, you know, like wow, I want to know more. Boy, there's just so much. So I'm I'm just gonna re- recommend uh Dr. Ephraim Isaac's book. He has a book on Ethiopian Christianity. Dr. Ephraim Isaac, of course, he's Ethiopian and he was a professor at Princeton University. But his book on Ethiopian Christianity, it talks about the Bible. It talks about fasting, their different traditions, their 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 way of being in the world. It talks about the language. So that's just one, one good starting point. I have a number of scattered essays and articles that I'm in the process of collecting for my own book that's dealing with the um the what I call the invisible lives of Ethiopic manuscripts. But that won't be out for a little bit of time. Well but, we will uh, be we we will be waiting and anticipating um anticipating it. So so let's move on to uh, as we wrap up and we certainly appreciate your time and I know that you are a professor who is also teaching classes there. And it's the spring, and I'm sure there's a number of students who want to know about this, that, and the other, and all of the things that go along with um, with with being a a professor that you have to get to. Um, what does it mean to live well? Mm. Yeah. What does it mean to live well? Um wow, yeah, that's 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 real. I would say having a sense of peace about who you are, created in the image of God, and continually acknowledging that even when everything in the society and everywhere you turn will want to make you forget that you're created in the image of God, and then just finding a space for peace. So to live well for me is to slow things down when everything in the world is saying do more, be faster, 
post up more, do this, do that. It's like, no, for me, living well is slowing down, eating right, sleeping as much as I can. Right, right. And, uh, and, And spending some good quality time with the people who mean the most to me, but ultimately coming back to peace. Awesome. Awesome. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, do you like Ethiopian food? I love Ethiopian food. Oh my God. The spices are the best. Yeah. So I am a fan too. And I have my, my, my favorites there in, in DC and and sort of the DMV. Where, where, where are, um, because there's a huge Ethiopian population in the, in that that part of the country. Um, Where's your go-to for Ethiopian food? My go-to in D.C. is this restaurant called Habasha off of 9th Street. Habasha. Yeah, I've I've, I've seen it. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's one of these, you would pass right by it. And then there are a host of restaurants up the other way in Silver Spring. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm not going to name out one, but I will name out Habasha. And you can't go. I have to I have to go there now and, and now for the life of is it chair cherub um chair is there someplace else in DC? I want to say it's not far from Habasha, but anyway. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I I DC's the, the, the place yes. for Ethiopian. We have some great places here in Atlanta too. Okay. All right. So thank you for that. Um music. <laughs> music. What is what's your what's what's you it, peace? What music brings you sort of peace? Yeah. Um, I I go to the spirituals. You know, I'm I'm a church person, church leader, grew up in the church. And we're coming right off of a Holy Week. And now we're into, we've gotten past the tomb and we're living into this season of resurrection. But um I reflect on what that means that that we serve a living God, right? And I try to live into what what that means, the promise of eternal life. So there's no one particular hymn per se, but I, I lean on the hymns of the church. When times get hard, I'm yeah. still one of those folks. <laughs> Heard that? But, uh, yeah. So, okay, I, all right. I'm not going to altar call right now, but <laughs> no, that would, if you want to go right ahead, that we, you know, hey, listen, this is this is the independent show, so you know, listen, okay. we do what we want to here. We're talking about Christianity, so I'm gonna close out. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Right, okay. and okay. that that keeps us humble. Yeah, in this endeavor, though, it really does keep us so humble, and uh, that's what I try to do. In my teaching and learning, teaching and learning, as I said, we just continue to do what we can in our season. And so this is one offering for this day. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I have enjoyed it. And I am certain that I will get questions about this and want to know more. I want to do a better job for my listeners here um, the of, of talking about the books um, that I used, at least in preparing. There's uh, Womanist Interpretations of the Bible Expanding the Discourse, edited by 
Dr. Gay Byron and Dr. Vanessa Lovelace. And then I have this book, African Zion, um, The Sacred Art of Ethiopia. There's some great essays um, within this book. I will say um, you can buy this book, One of Interpretations, uh, always independent bookstores first, black bookstores even better. And even better than that, your library card because the book African Zion is pretty expensive. So, oh, yeah, library, well, that's yeah. yeah, library card is always good for that. And uh, our passports, um, right now, while we have them, are another way to go and explore. Can people access and by people? I'm certainly it's only humans, but can can um, people access the Tweed collection at Howard, or do you have to be a Scholar. No, you can actually go online. I do want to mention Symbolic Blackness, too. That's another, my first publication that'll get you into this kind of way I think about early Christianity and, and my point of departure, Symbolic Blackness and Ethnic Difference. But you can you can look up the Tweed Collection, Ethiopic Manuscripts at Howard University. If you search that, um, you can find me at, Howard has a, a faculty profile for all faculty. So you, you can find me on that faculty page at Howard University. But the Tweed collection is housed on a, a, a digital platform. So you can see a digital version of the collection uh, just by typing in uh, Tweed collection. I'll just leave it at that. That'll start up a whole new conversation about the digitization of Ethiopia. Right. So I'm going to just put a pin in that one. <laughs> Well, no, that's, I'm glad you put a pin in it because, listen, no podcast, not even a documentary or even a single book replaces study. Faith is very important. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, for Black people, it, it has sustained us. And I think we can go a little bit deeper in our understanding and connecting in other ways. So, uh, Dr. Byron, Byron, we really appreciate you joining us and taking the time. Uh, everyone else, I'm going to sign off. Again, always uh, listen, uh, engage, like, share the information, talk about it, and uh, most of all, act on it. And we appreciate you all joining us at the Parlay in All Blue. Till next time. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you for joining us. Parlay in All Blue is produced by Raina Booth Podcast Productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash Parlay in All Blue. Remember to like the show, leave a review, and share it. It helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us. If you have questions, comments, or show ideas, please email us at mark at the parlayinallblue.com. Finally, remember to follow us on social media. And thanks, be well, and we out.